Father in heaven, we ask for wisdom from your throne, for help that comes from you. We ask that you'd help us this morning to hear your word and to be changed by it. I pray for the the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us this morning. I pray that I would preach a sermon that's faithful, where Christ is exalted, that you would use to point us to rest in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, have you experienced this moment recently where you pick up your phone and you're scrolling through, just maybe trying to escape, see what's going on, and all of a sudden there's a breaking news headline, but this headline isn't good. It's another headline of something horrific that's happened in society. You start to read headlines from that news story, you see pictures, perhaps viral videos that are playing, and you start to feel anxious overwhelmed, discouraged by the evil that is present in the world. You know, we may experience moments like that more frequently than we'd like, right? Far too often we read these terrible news headlines. And with all of the evil in the world, it may sometimes even feel like darkness is winning. It may grow anxious thinking about the future, and as Christians, maybe even at times, we may wonder, why did God let this happen? For those of us who are in Christ, we find courage this morning that God is not absent. The book of Genesis helps us not to be surprised that there's evil in this world. Throughout God's Word, we're prepared and equipped that this side of glory, there will be suffering, we will endure trials, there will be evil, even evil that comes from us. For those who are in Christ this morning, we cling to the promise that Christ is with us. Our God, He is at work in this sinful, fallen, evil world. Well, last week we considered the the story of Joseph. Through the terrible story of Joseph's brothers conspiring to murder him and then selling him into slavery, we see that his brothers meant it for evil, but God the whole time was at work. He was at work for what was good and right. And this week we see another terrible situation with Joseph's brother, Judah. Now, it's a sad and shocking scene. One of the darkest chapters in the book of Genesis, and really in all of the Old Testament, a chapter with evil, deception, immorality. We see a lot of sadness in this chapter. We also see that throughout all of that, God was at work. Interestingly enough, this is another chapter that we do not see God specifically mentioned. We saw that last week in chapter 37 as well. Just like we saw last week in chapter 37, God was not absent from this story. His invisible hand, His work, His faithfulness to His promise, it's clearly seen here in this chapter. He was at work the whole time. His hands not tied or hindered by evil in this world. We see in this story nothing can stop His fatherly hand from providing what he has promised. In our chapter today, we see an important story to understand that the history of Judah. It's a dark chapter, yet it's a story where the light of God's grace is clearly on display. The light of God's grace shining through this 
dark story, providing hope that darkness does not win. You see, what's highlighted in these narratives, it's God's faithfulness. It's God's commitment to His promise. And Christians, may we see our story in this. This side of glory, we will experience the effects of evil. We will experience the effects of living in a sinful, fallen world. Yet we can be comforted that our God is always at work. Nothing can stop His plans. Nothing will stop Him from providing for His people. And by His sovereign grace, He empowers us, His people, to walk in the light in the midst of a very dark world. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in Genesis chapter 38 is this. If you're taking notes this morning, you can jot this main idea down. The evil in this world will not stop the power of God and His promise. The evil in this world will not stop the power of God and His promise. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 38. If you want to use that pew Bible right there in front of you, it's, it's the best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to look at a copy of God's Word. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that, that Bible in front of you, turn to Genesis 38. That's on page 32 of that pew Bible, page 32. And we're going to be in that this morning. You can take that Bible home with you. That's our, our gift to you and we'd love to connect you with somebody at this church you can read the Bible with. So if you've come with a member of our church, maybe talk to them about that. Or you can see any of our pastors or staff will be at the doors on your way out. We'd love to connect you with someone here you could read the Bible with. Genesis 38 is where we're going to be this morning. Now when you read through Genesis and you get to the end of chapter 37, like we did last week in our story, one episode ends in Genesis. Joseph, he's being sold, he's sold into slavery, he's being carted off to Egypt, sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And then you get to chapter 38, and you think, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I was on the edge of my seat wondering what happened to Joseph, and then the story gets interrupted for this wild story about Judah and his family. Like, what happened with, with Joseph? It was almost like I'm streaming a show, and the next episode pops up, and what, what happens? This is a completely different show. Well, I recently saw a picture of a friend of mine who's a pastor at a church here in the state, and uh, he had a picture on social media where he was donning a multicolored robe in a play at his church. He was playing uh, the role of, of Joseph. And uh, I imagined with that play, I didn't get to see the play, but I saw a picture of that play. I thought, you know, I'm pretty sure that play probably went from Genesis 37 right to 39. I'm pretty sure they didn't include Genesis chapter 38, and rightly so, for a children's play at church. But it is good for us as a church in our state of Genesis, not to skip over to chapter 39, but take, take a look at this story, which may seem odd, which we may wonder, why did the story of Joseph get interrupted for this, and to understand why this is placed here. And by the time we're at the end of the chapter, I think we'll see the role that this story plays, this dark chapter, actually God uses it to move the story of His promise forward. And the theme, it remains the same in this chapter the providence of God. We thought about that last week, the providence of God. In this dark chapter, we see a story of God's providence on display. God's providence, last week we considered, it's often referred to His invisible, 
yet powerful hand that cannot be stopped. Simply put, God's providence tells us this. God is in control, and God is good. He's in control, reigning all over all of the earth that He created. And He's good. He is faithful to His promise. And He arranges all things together to move His promise forward, to bring Himself the most glory and to do the good that He has promised to His people. Well, in this chapter, as we make our way through chapter 38, you'll notice that there's a movement from, from darkness to light. I mean, it's dark. It's dark. But it leaves us with a very clear picture of light as God delivers His promise. So there's three parts this morning to our, our outline, and we're going to trace through three movements in this part. We're going to trace through three parts this morning that show us the movement from darkness to light. The first part I want us to see, part one, verses one through 11, the darkness of disobedience. That's part one, the darkness of disobedience. Joseph, he's being carted off to Egypt. At that same time, chapter 38 shows us what's happening with his brother Judah. Verse 1, it happened at that time. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name is Hira. It's an important turn. Judah left his brothers. He left his father Jacob and his father's household to go and settle among the Canaanites. Now, from what we saw in the last chapter, Judah's not a good guy. I mean, he conspired to murder his younger brother, Joseph. Uh, he ended up talking to his brothers, well, maybe we should murder him. Maybe we should profit off of him by selling him as a slave. He didn't really care what God thought. He didn't care about his father. They lied to his father and deceived him. He didn't care that his father was mourning and sad that he was deceived into thinking that his son Joseph had been killed. You see, Judah had no regard for God. He just lived horizontally. He was selfish and he used people. And here in chapter 38, in leaving his family, again, the, the people of Israel, Judah, leaving to going to live in Canaan, continues to show he has no regard for God. He goes to dwell amongst a, a wicked people. He leaves God's promises, turns away from God's blessing to go and live amongst a pagan people. Now, now Judah is going the wrong direction in verse 1. Again, going to live among the people of Canaan was going to live amongst evil. If you remember back to our time in Genesis chapter 9, the Canaanites were a people under a curse. They were the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. They were a pagan people. They were godless, they were evil, and they were known for sexual perversity. And that's what we see here in, in this chapter, godlessness and evil throughout chapter 38. What we read here, it's dark, it's shocking, it's disturbing. And the evil and the land of Canaan came to bear on Judah and his family. So this chain of evil events in chapter 38, it's connected to this decision in verse 1. Judah's decision to go and settle among the Canaanites. He was heading away from his family, heading away from blessing, heading away from God's promises. Joseph, he was heading away because he was sold into slavery. Judah, on the other hand, he's heading away because he simply wasn't interested in a life 
with God. Him settling among the Canaanites was a choice to settle in disobedience to God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, settling in disobedience, it always results in a mess. It never ends up good. Refusing to repent of sin and refusing to turn away from what dishonors God and violates His holy word, it never ends up working well. It never ends up satisfying you. It creates a mess for you. In this story, it also creates a mess for those around you. So we get a real picture of what was going on here. Vivid details. The Bible does not hold back in showing us the ugliness of sin. The Bible does not hold back in showing us the evil character of Judah. We can trust the Bible. It doesn't paint these characters in a positive light. The main character, the hero, the one who gets the glory and all of the Bible, it's God. It's God himself. And that's what we see in this narrative. Well, we see in verse 2 there that Judah, he settles in Canaan, and he takes a wife from among the Canaanites. Now, now both Abraham and Isaac in previous chapters had warned against marrying from the Canaanites. Abraham directed the servant to go back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. And we see Isaac also warning to not marry from among a godless pagan people. Yet Judah settles in Canaan, takes a wife, and they have three sons, wicked sons. The oldest son, Ur, he marries Tamar. And in verse 7, we see that the Lord put Ur to death because of his wickedness. That's been a while in the book of Genesis since we've seen God put someone to death for their wickedness. You have to go back to Genesis chapter 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah to see God's judgment coming to bear and taking life because of wickedness. And we don't get the specific details of what happened here in verse 7, but we read simply that Ur was wicked, and the Lord put him to death, judging him for his wickedness. Now, this results in a problem that really is the problem of the rest of the chapter. Tamar is now a widow without a child. Now, what normally would have happened in that time if a brother died without an heir, without a child to pass on an inheritance to, the custom was that the father-in-law would give his next oldest son to marry his brother's widow. And later, this type of, of custom was codified in the Mosaic Law. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. It outlines this kind of marriage law that was a custom in that day. And, and that may seem strange to you and I in America and the West and our understanding of, of marriage, but it would not have seemed strange to the original audience hearing this. Again, they were understanding the book of Genesis through the context of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So they would have known what was contained there in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and this would have made sense. What was right, what should have happened, is that Onan should have married his, brother, his brother's uh, widow and, and done what was right, raised up offspring for her. That's why in verse 8, Judah orders the second oldest son there, Onan, to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, the interesting thing that that offspring, it legally would not be Onan's son. Biologically, yes, would have been his son, but legally would not be his son. It would be considered rather the son of the older brother, and, and even that child would receive the same name of the deceased brother. It gives us context for what should have happened here, but we read that Onan refuses to produce a child with Tamar. 
His motivation is one of self-interest. He wants the inheritance for himself. He raises up a child for his sister-in-law. That child becomes the heir of his father's inheritance. So there's a a conflict of interest at play here. That's why in verse 9, Onan was holding back from fulfilling his duty as a brother. Consider that this isn't merely a refusal to do right for his sister Tamar, but also a refusal to do what was right for his father, Jacob. A refusal to do what was right for his grandfather, Isaac, and for his great-grandfather, Abraham, who were all promised descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky, who were all promised that kings would come from them. But Onan had no interest in the promises of God. His refusal to produce children for his brother-in-law, it's, it's greedy, excuse me, for his brother, that's greedy and a selfish act. And in verse 10, the Lord put him to death for this. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So the problem remains, Tamar is still a widow, still without child. Again, the law called for the, the next oldest son to be given to Mary Tamar. But in verse 11, Judah's response to all of this puts the household in a terrible position. His third son, Shelah, should be given to Mary Tamar, but Judah's afraid to do this. He's already lost two sons. He feared that his third son would die just like his brother did. And so he tells Tamar, go back to your father's house, telling her that he would give her his son, Shelah, when he'd grown up, when he was of marrying age. But this was basically Judah getting rid of her. As the story unfolds, we see Judah, he wasn't sincere about providing his third son. He wasn't sincere about fulfilling his pledge to Tamar. But it also puts the entire family in a difficult position. Tamar is now betrothed to Shelah. Think about it like betrothal is an engagement. Neither one of them was free to marry someone else. And now there are two problems. Tamar is a widow without a child, and Judah's line faces extinction. You see, Judah, he traveled away from God's promise. He turned away from God's blessing, giving himself to live in disobedience. His decision to settle among the Canaanites was the first link in a chain that brought about a world of trouble and a mess for his whole family here. And there certainly is a warning here for us as Christians. Brother and sister in the Lord, be careful where you position yourself. We will reap what we sow. God sees everything. You see, Judah didn't care about what God saw. He cared about what his father saw, and that's why he deceived him into thinking that Joseph was dead. But he didn't fear God. You see, we will reap what we sow. If we, if we sow to the flesh, meaning sow to the sinful flesh, we will reap bad fruit in our lives. Well, Oakhurst Baptist Church, remember, are you positioning yourself for obedience or for disobedience? Well, for starters this morning, let me encourage you, you've positioned yourself for obedience. When you come to hear God's Word and worship with other Christians, and you come to hear God's Word, 
and to pray God's word and to sing God's word to others, that makes a difference in your life because all of that hearing and those deposits of God's word, God is faithful to bring fruit from that. So something as simple as setting your alarm clock and waking up and coming to church, don't underestimate the good fruit God will bring in your life through that. You see, he gives us an opportunity to position ourselves every Sunday morning with the people of God sitting under the Word of God. And that faithful repetition is just the ordinary means of grace that God uses to mature us as Christians, to help us persevere this side of glory. Keep positioning yourself. I can't tell you how many stories I hear from pastors and how many Christians I run into in town. And I ask them, you know, how's it going at such and such a church? And they tell me, well, I really hadn't gotten back since COVID. And I looked at one of my friends one time, and I said, brother, it's been two years since COVID. What are you doing still at home? You can't, you can't participate in the assembly of a local church watching a screen in your living room. He goes to another church, and I said, brother, go back to church. Be around God's people. You should not expect good fruit to come for positioning yourself in disobedience like that. But how else through the week can we think about encouraging one another? And that's really the ministry of this church, to encourage one another to be in God's Word, to pray. That's what community groups are for. That's what discipling relationships are for, that together we would spur one another on to obedience to God's Word. Don't try to live the Christian life by yourself. Ask the question, who can you encourage here in this church? Who can you walk together with in memorizing Scripture and praying and studying the Bible? I am thankful for how many displays I see of that in our local church. Let's keep going. Let's position ourselves by God's grace for obedience. Well, the second part we see here in verses 12 through 26 continues to be dark. Part two, the darkness of deception. The darkness of deception. Time moves on. In verse 12, we read that Judah's wife dies. And as time has passed on, Sheila has grown up and nothing has changed. Tamar is still a widow without a child. Judah had no intention of fulfilling his duty to give his third son to marry Tamar, and Tamar came to realize what was happening. And in this scene, we see that Tamar is more determined to gain descendants for Judah than Judah is himself. And she waits for the right opportunity, but she comes up with a deceptive plan. Now, the opportunity comes when Judah becomes a widower, presumably lonely, presumably she wasn't moving in and adultery in that respect. But additionally, it's an opportune moment as Judah was heading up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So the shearing of the sheep, it involved a, a festival. So, so likely in this festival, he would have been eating and drinking and in a festive atmosphere. So Tamar puts her deceptive plan into action. She disguises herself as a prostitute and covers her face to where Judah would not recognize her. Now, to understand the context of this situation, back in those times, prostitution was connected to pagan religion. We see that later on and, and kind of the, the connected to a cult, a religious practice. So Tamar likely dressed as a shrine prostitute. So for Judah... Not only was this an act of sexual immorality, it was also an act of idolatry against the one true God. You see, what's interesting is that, that Tamar 
came up with that plan likely because she figured it would work, which tells us what kind of person Judah was. Well, they negotiate the price of a young goat. And as a pledge of that payment, an important exchange takes place in verse 18. Tamar asked for Judah's signet and cord and staff. Now, all of these were personal items that would have had identification markers on them. The the signet most likely was a seal that would bear his name and have a cord running through it. The staff would have something likely carved on top, like a, a mark that was an identification marker marking off his name. In today's society, that'd be like handing over a a form of identification, like your driver's license. It was a way to identify you. Tamar's plan works. We read at the end of verse 17, so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Well, there isn't any explicit moral evaluation given by Moses, the narrator of Genesis, but we do see deception being used again, which would help us know that what Tamar did was sinful. It was wrong. While her determination for offspring wasn't wrong, her plan was. Her actions were how she pursued it was wrong. And with this, the theme of family deception continues. Jacob deceived Isaac for a blessing using a goat, wearing goatskin. Judah and his brothers deceived Jacob using a goat dipping Joseph's multicolored robe in the blood of a goat to deceive him into thinking that Joseph was dead. And here, Tamar deceives Judah using a goat for the price of a goat. This deception and darkness continues on. Now in Judah, when he sent his Canaanite friend to take the goat to Tamar, of course, she was nowhere to be found. And to save himself the embarrassment, he did not search for her, but let her keep the items that he had given to her. Well, three months later, what happens? Tamar turns up pregnant. This news in verse 24 comes to Judah. He's told she is pregnant by immorality. Remember, she's betrothed to his son, Sheila, during all of this. Getting pregnant during your betrothal period, it was a sign of immorality that was punishable by death. And Judah responds there at the end of verse 24, bring her out and let her be burned. For Judah, that was a moment of, relig- of righteous indignation, a moment of hypocrisy, acting like he doesn't know what's going on, acting like he doesn't know how she got pregnant, acting in a rage that she was brought shame on the family with a complete disregard for his own evil and his own wrong. He's quick to condemn someone else for her evil, but acting like there wasn't evil in his own life. He's enraged and he demands justice. But he gets justice in a way he wasn't calling for or expecting. Here's when that signet and that cord and that staff come into play. The last moment as she faces her death along with her preborn children. These items belonging to Judah get revealed. It gets revealed to him who that prostitute was. She points to them saying in verse 25, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Busted. The truth comes out. Well, how would Judah respond? It's the resolution to the conflict there in verse 26. 
Verse 26 marks a turning point. We see something different out of Judah when confronted with his sin and his evil. He admits it. He is the one who got Tamar pregnant. He is the one who dealt with her unjustly, withholding his son Shelah from her. And he declares in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. I think this marks the beginning of transformation for Judah. All we've seen is darkness out of Judah up until this point. Judah gave himself over to evil, but what we see here in verse 26 is the beginning of a turning away from evil. That turning away began with admitting his sin, declaring his own guilt. And then he turned away from sin. Look at the end of verse 26. And he did not know her again. It's repentance. He he turned away from sin. Well, how do we know this is repentance and transformation? Well, we're not there yet, but if you've read through this story in Genesis 44, which you certainly are free to read ahead in this sermon series, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 44, and really every time after this, what we see from Judah is a different man, a changed person. In Genesis 44, he shows up as a sacrificial leader of the family. In 44, he, he volunteers his own life and place as a substitute in the life of his younger brother, Benjamin. He changes from a man who's known to use people to this sacrificial leader in Genesis chapter 44, offering to put his life in the place of his younger brother, Benjamin. You see, the beginning of this transformation, we see it here. It starts with admitting sin, turning away from wrong. That's what repentance means. It means to turn away from sin. It's a change of mind internally, that the way that I'm living It violates God's righteous commands. It's a change of mind about sin, agreeing with God and what He's said in His Word that produces an outward action of turning away from sin. So you can see repentance becomes visible because you turn away from that sin. It's the beginning of Judah's transformation. It's the beginning of a life with God. It's the beginning of the Christian life is repentance. You see, the story of the Bible, it's not about people who've made all the right choices and did all the right things. The story of the Bible is about sinners being forgiven. The story of the Bible is about God's redemption coming through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this redemption accomplished through His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. Well, how does that work on the cross? And how does the power of the empty tomb get applied to your life as an individual? Because it has to. You will stand before God one day. He will judge you. You will give an account of your life. You will be declared sinful in front of Him unless you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, turned away, trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, His blood as payment for your sin. You see, the church is not made up of really good people. Like This church is not just made up of the really good people in Charlotte. The people who were just on it and heeded the lessons that someone else taught them. We were just able to figure things out that no one else in Charlotte were. And we are the examples of the wise and good and right people in Charlotte. That is not our testimony. This church is made up of sinful people who've been forgiven. You see, those who tell you that good people will go to heaven and bad people will go to hell, that is a myth. Forgiven people go to heaven. 
those who've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the good news that we proclaim every Sunday is that anyone who would turn and put their trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins today, this morning. You cannot do good enough to pay God the debt you owe Him because of your sin. It's ever so clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are a people that have been redeemed by God. Judah is not the, story, the, his, the hero of this story. God is. He's gracious. His grace pursued Judah. By God's grace, Judah's sin found him out. And by God's grace, Judah repented. Or brother and sister, our faith is not in what we've done, but in what God has done in Jesus Christ. Every other religion out there will tell you, here's what you must do to make yourself right with God. Here's what you must do to earn your way to heaven. Christianity is the only religion that will proclaim it's not what we've done because what we've done is sinful. We've sinned against the God who created us. Christianity is about what God has done in sending his son Jesus down to earth to die on the cross as payment for the penalty of our sin against God. It's about what God's done through Jesus dying in our place rising from the dead to bring new life, forgiveness of sins, free righteousness from the throne of God to any who would turn and trust in Jesus. And if you're here today and you've not repented and put your faith in Jesus the way we just talked about, you can do that today. I really hope you don't just come to church and hear things and leave. Sure, there's a time to consider what you've heard, but would you talk to someone today who brought you, a friend who brought you, a parent who's here with you. You can talk to one of our pastors. I'll be right here afterwards. We'll have pastors at the door. Could you talk to them about what it would look like to turn and trust in Jesus today? I wonder what it is that's keeping you from doing that. We'd love to talk with you more and share more about a life with God that comes through faith in Jesus. Well, part three we see in verses 27 through 30, we start to see light. 27 through 30, part three, the delivery of of God's promise in darkness. The delivery of God's promise in darkness. Now we're mostly through the story here, just four verses left, and you still may wonder, why is this story here interrupting the Joseph story from chapter 37 to 39? Well, this last four verses, they help us see why this chapter is here. And what we read here, it sounds familiar to another story we've seen in Genesis and it points the way forward. It sounds a lot like the story of Isaac. Right? We see in verse 27, Isaac and Rebekah. In verse 27, we see that Tamar has twin boys in the womb. They wrestle with one another there in her womb, and the younger one prevails. In verse 28, one baby's hand comes out first, Zira, and has a scarlet thread tied around his hand. That would make him the older brother. Yet, as he's being delivered, he drew his hand back. And his twin brother Perez pushes him aside and beats his brother out of the womb. Uh, they're wrestling, and the image we get here, it, it sounds like, again a lot like Jacob and Esau. The, the wrestling here resulted in the firstborn being reversed. Perez would be the son through whom Judah's lineage was traced. And then the chapter ends. Why does it end like that? Okay, the twins are born over and we're back to Joseph. Well, it ends that way because the point's been made. 
The main purpose of this chapter is to continue the link to the promised Redeemer. To continue the link, we see all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of this promised one, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. We see that link to that promised Redeemer being fulfilled here at the end of chapter 38. The, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, traced here, and the promised Redeemer will come through this line, which helps us know in the midst of all that evil, God was at work. He may not have been specifically mentioned in this chapter, but His power and His presence unmistakably clear. His fatherly hand providing for His covenant promises to Abraham of descendants. You see, Judah running to live among the Canaanites, resigning himself to live in disobedience, would not stop God's plans. Judah's intermarrying, his evil actions, the deception of Tamar would not stop God's plans. God was present working the whole time for his glory and for the good of his people. You know, when you first read this chapter, again, it may seem like setback after setback after setback, like a spiral down into evil, like darkness is winning. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we see that in the midst of all of this evil, God was at work the whole time to bring about good. As the story of Genesis unfolds, Judah will be the one that the lineage will be traced through. Through Judah, the covenant promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. Kings will come from his line. You see, Judah's line ends up becoming the largest tribe in Israel. And he ends up becoming a leader of Israel. You know, in recording the history of Judah in this chapter, what Moses is recording is the history of the tribe from which salvation came. Tamar ended up securing descendants for Judah, and not just any descendants, kings. From Tamar's son, Perez, eventually through his line comes Boaz. That sounds familiar, Boaz. He's found in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, there's a genealogy in Ruth 4 that traces from Perez to King David in 10 generations. So we get from Genesis 38 to King David in the Old Testament in 10 generations there in Ruth 4. Not only would kings like David and Solomon come from Judah and Tamar, but eventually the king of kings, Jesus, comes from this line. In the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, we've referenced this a number of times in our study of Genesis, we see here a genealogy that goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And Judah's family is all mentioned in the genealogy that traces from Abraham to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And the rest of that genealogy traces from Perez to Jesus, the king of kings. You know, when reading the story of Judah and Tamar, it may seem odd at first that God used this act of deception to accomplish his will. But when we read on through the New Testament, this is surprising. We see an act of deception at the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. Jesus predicted his betrayal, that Judas, his disciple, would betray him. But yet in that act of deception where Judas betrayed Jesus and kissed him on the cheek, 
That kiss of betrayal and the worst moment of Judas was actually the moment that led our Savior to the cross to die for us. You see, God is always at work fulfilling His plans. And through this dark story, in chapter 38 came the light of the world. We find this amazing link to Jesus. It helps us know that all of Scripture, every book of the Bible, points to Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates Jesus coming. In the Gospels of the New Testament, it speaks of the manifestation of Jesus. In the book of Acts, there's proclamation about Jesus dying on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended back up to the right hand of the throne of God and returning one day. In the letters of the New Testament, there's explanation about Jesus, what he did, who he was, how that applies to our life, how we should live in light of that. And in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, it speaks of consummation. When Jesus returns back to earth and the kingdom of God is completely finished, the earth consumed by the glory of heaven. All the Bible points us to what God has done in Jesus. What's more is that Tamar, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile from outside of Israel, outside of the people of God, was used by God himself to secure the promise for Abraham of descendants kings coming from him. And Tamar's inclusion in this line shows us that hope would come to all nations, to the Gentiles, hope found in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is a story of God's grace. That's what Genesis 38 is. It magnifies the grace of God. All of the Bible magnifies the grace of God. And Christian, isn't that your story? Do your conversion through your salvation, through, through every bit of good fruit that's present in your life, every evidence of God's grace that is visible and seen and present in your life, all of that exists to magnify God's grace to you. Together as Christians, we can say he's been so gracious. He's been so good to us in Jesus. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in us making right choices and our, our, our impressive discipline for the future. Our hope's in Jesus, the same one who saved us. He will sustain us and carry us on until the end. Christian, in your testimony, you share this testimony that we see in 38. When you were living in sin against the Lord, God was not absent. We hear testimonies all the time at our baptisms. Those are like my favorite Sundays, the baptism testimonies. And it's testimony after testimony, whether somebody grew up in a Christian family or even grew up here in this local church hearing the gospel, or whether they grew up not knowing about Jesus, the testimony is the same. I was lost, but now I'm found. The blood of the Lamb saved my soul. It's the shared testimony we have that God was not absent in our lives. He was at work in our lives using different circumstances and different people to draw us to himself. He orchestrated events in your life when you were walking in sin and darkness, blind in your sin. God was so graciously at work in your life, drawing him to drawing you to himself to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. What we sing together, the hope we have is this, is that death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness, free to live, and free to love. Death is dead, and Christ is risen. It was finished 
upon that cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the grace of God is perfectly magnified. May we glory in how much God has loved us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, as we close our time out this morning. Please bow with me.